We have another double parsha this week, Bahar B'chukaisai. We're going to speak a little bit about Bahar. It says in Parachaf Bey's Psukim Chaf and Chaf Aleph, talking about the Shemitah year, and Shemitah is coming up, Mirza Hashem, next year in Eretz Yisrael, so it's very Nagea. V'chi Saimru. And let's say a farmer who is keeping the Shemitah year says, what in the world am I going to eat? After all, I didn't plant and I didn't gather any of my crops this year. It's the seventh year. I'm not allowed to do anything. My hands are tied. I have to let everybody eat all of my, uh, my produce in the field. Everything becomes hefker. I'm not planting. I'm not allowed to touch a plow or a, or a bag of seeds this year. I have to keep everything... Shabbos Lashem, Mamish, a year of Shabbos, and I'm not allowed to do anything. So there is a good question that the farmer wants to ask. What am I going to eat? It's very cute. I, I love Shemitah. It's great. Shabbos is nice, but I need to eat something. I don't have any other source of income other than farming. I don't have a stock portfolio. I don't have a passive income coming in. How am I going to be able to support my family? It's a very good question. What am I going to eat? I have a whole, this year I don't know what I'm going to eat. Next year, the eighth year, I don't know what I'm going to eat. So how is that going to work out for me? And the Pasuk says, Hashem is talking, I'm going to already preempt that question. I'm going to give you bracha on the sixth year, tremendous bumper crop. And you're going to have not only for the sixth year, which is a normal year, but the seventh year you're going to have in your storage houses, produce, and it's going to be so much that it's going to even last you into the eighth year, and you're going to be fine. And that's how the Pasuk ends. And the question that I had was that it sounds like we're almost rewarding the farmer that has questions. I mean, let's say I'm a bigger Balbitachan than that. Let's say I'm a farmer and I have no questions. Everything is fine. I'm going to be able to get through it. Hashem commanded it. I don't have any questions. I'm Everything is going to be good. Everything's going to be fine. I don't ask questions. Is that farmer going to suffer in any way? Is that farmer not going to get uh, a special bracha from HaKadosh Baruch Hu? It seems like this command of the bracha specifically comes to the farmer that asks the questions of it's almost like we're inviting this question to be asked. What am I going to eat? I didn't plant anything. How is that going to work out for me? I'm like desperately, you know, needing parnasa. What, what's going to happen? Oh, don't worry, but CV says Why is it specifically to the guy that's asking the questions? That doesn't seem to be like a, a person that has so much bitachin, but yet he's the person that HaKadosh Baruch is directing his bracha to. Now obviously, if you have bitachin, HaKadosh Baruch will give you bracha, certainly. But it seems from the psukim that there's something about this farmer that has this question of that specifically him, HaKadosh Baruch is is going to reward. And I didn't understand that. So I think the answer lies in an understanding of what Shemitah is all about. 
If you look in the Sefer HaChinuch, which is always the go-to Sefer whenever you want to understand the underpinnings of a mitzvah, if you ever want to understand what exactly is going on under the hood of the mitzvah, like why did HaKadosh Baruch Hu command this mitzvah? What are, what are we supposed to take? Which musr, which moral value should I take from this mitzvah? So the Sefer HaChinuch gives us that insight into the mitzvah. And it doesn't mean, of course, that this is the only kavanah that Hashem had, it might be one of a thousand or a million kavanahs that Hashem has. We don't know, and he, he writes this as a disclaimer in his Akdama, that I'm not saying that I know the answer to why the, what is the Sherosh mitzvah, but the whole point of the Sefer HaChinuch, actually, and that's why he called it the Sefer HaChinuch, the book of education, is because he was writing this for his young son and his son's friend, who were learning, and he wanted to, every, I guess he gave them like a weekly shear on the, on the mitzvahs, he wanted to dress it up a little bit and not just give the halachas or a few halachas on the mitzvah, but he also wanted to give a little bit of musr and a little understanding. So he gives me shrashiyah mitzvah, he gives the, the seeds, the, the foundations of the mitzvah, and he never claims that this is the only kavanah, but he gives us a very, very good framework for understanding the mitzvah, and it, it became obviously one of the most classic uh, sefer on the mitzvahs that that we have. And then the Minchas Chinuch came and uh, and elaborated on his work and made it really super famous with his brilliant halachic analysis on all of the uh, pratim of the mitzvah. So the obvious takeaway, and this is all in the Chinuch for Shemitah, is that you have to learn bitachin. We have to learn bitachem. We don't really trust Hashem enough in our life. We might think we trust Hashem. We might try to trust Hashem. But as much as we trust Hashem, we're not comfortable totally throwing ourselves into his, into his arms. Like one of my kids has this uh, habit of doing trust, uh, trust falls, it's called. All of a sudden, randomly, the you know they will like suddenly start fainting on top of the marble floor, and I have to like quickly try to catch them, you know. And, and if I would chas v'sham, like be looking the other way for a second, you know, Atzala would be in my ass a minute later. But it's like a way of testing bitachin. You have to, you know, it's a trustful. Can I trust you? And I'm putting all my trust into you that you're going to catch me. Are we doing that with Hashem? Are we able to throw ourselves so much into Hashem's arms that we trust Him that we're not going to fall? It would be great if we could do that, but we know that we don't always do that, right? We want to have a a nice cushion in our bank account, and we want to have a a great profession, and we want to make sure that we, we cross all the T's and dot all the I's in our professional life, in our, in our financial life. We want to make sure that we, we don't have too much risk in our life. We, we, want to, we want to, we'll trust Hashem, but as like a, as a last resort. Our first resort is we want to really trust ourselves. I trust myself, and then, you know, and then uh, after that I trust Hashem. But first I got to make sure that I'm good. And that's, uh, that's okay. That's better than nothing. At least you're, you have Hashem in your life. But the real way that Hashem would prefer for us to live our daily lives is to, as the Pasuk says, Hashlech el Hashem yehavcha, Throw all of your baggage on Hashem and He will provide for you. That's not to say we don't have to make a Ishtadlis, we don't have to make a Parnassah, we do have to make a Ishtadlis, and that's 
part of the Teba Abriya, that's a completely another topic of uh, conversation. But after all the Ishtadlis that we have, we have to throw ourselves completely in the arms of Hashem and say, you're it, I trust you. And for example, like the um, the Chavis Havavis in, in his famous Sharabitachan writes, if let's say you would have a very wealthy uh, father, or let's say you have a rich uncle, you would always feel like you know, you're taken care of, because my uncle happens to have a big business, very generous, he loves me, he says any day that I want to come into the business, it's mine. So you feel always confident, you feel like whatever I do, I'm floating on air, because I always have that uncle of mine, or that father of mine, that will never let me fall. Or let's say, for example, and he brings this also, uh, he calls it a money tree, but let's modernize it. Let's say I had in my basement an ATM machine, but it's not connected to any bank account. It's just an ATM machine that's freestanding. And any time that I need money, I just go down to my basement and, uh, you know, and, I, and I type in my code and out comes as much money as I ever would need. I'd feel pretty good. I'd feel good because I'm, I'm taken care of. So that's really what we have. We have a money machine. We have an ATM machine. We have a money tree. And we have a rich father and a rich uncle. And then, and all the rich uncles and all the richest fathers in the world, we each have. Why? Because HaKadosh Baruch is our father. He's the one that has all the money in the world. He's the one that controls all the financial systems in the world and all the agricultural systems. And the entire monetary ecosystem in the, in, on the globe is his. And he's my father, so I'm in good shape, if you believe this. But, you know, living a daily life, I don't, always, uh, I don't always know that I believe it because I'm confused. I see Wall Street, I see uh, cryptos, I see there's so much going on that I'm like, I, I feel like I have to be part of the rat race. And God is a nice thing, but come on, is he really going to send me money? Do I, I don't have an ATM machine, I don't... And Sakharish Baruchu gives us a few mitzvahs to work on this bitachin. One of them is the weekly Shabbos, which is also a, a, a tremendous source of emunah for many people because you know we're used to Baruch Hashem keeping Shabbos a given, but many people work seven days a week and they need to be burning the midnight oil every night and, and be doing their stock research and be doing their this and their shtadlis and working and, and making more money and more money and more money. It's hard for people to understand how a Jew could stop everything on Friday afternoon until Saturday night and not do any work and not use a, a smartphone and not trade any stocks and not call any, any clients. And it's hard for people to understand that. But we do every week. And by doing so, it's a lesson in bitachin. Now, you know, we live in a generation that it's not such a big nisayan because... There are laws to protect religious freedoms, and anyway, in America, you know, you're off from Friday afternoon to, to Monday morning anyway. But there are countries that keep a seven day work week, or and and you know, and they're not so uh, liberal with letting people off for you know for religious reasons. And so, or back in the day before that, these laws came in, on the books in America. It was tremendous mysterious nevish for people that were shimer Shabbos to keep Shabbos properly and not work because they would get fired very easily for saying that I have to leave work early on Friday afternoon and I can't work on Saturday. So, but for us, for our generation, 
Shabbos is not maybe such a great lesson in Bitochem because most people take off anyway on Saturday. And okay, so in the winter you have to take off a little early on Fridays. But Shemitah, I think we could all agree, is a huge deal in terms of Bitochem. If you're a farmer, not if you're a computer programmer in Eretz Yisrael, but if you're a farmer in Eretz Yisrael and you have farmland and you're producing wheat or coconuts or, or uh, kiwis or whatever your farm is producing and that's your source of income and now HaKadosh Baruch Hu comes along and says, okay, seventh year, everybody's learning in Kailo. There's nothing to do. You just daven all day, say tillim, get a chavrusa, go to shiurim, and that's it. <laughs> You're going to say, what do, you, what do you mean? I can't go to work a whole year. I mean, I, I could do it once a week maybe, but I, a whole year? It's crazy. Think about it. Think about a, telling a lawyer that every seven years he has to stop working. He can't, can't go to work. How am I going to do that? What do you mean? The, the firm's not going to stand for that. I'm not going to be able to, to keep... I have, a, I have some momentum going over here. I have a seniority. I'm going to give that all up by, by, leaving my, by leaving for, taking a sabbatical every seven years. I know Rabbanim that took sabbaticals. A sabbatical like the shul sometimes offers the Rav to take a, to take a year off. They never offered it to me yet. But, they, but Rabbanim sometimes takes sabbaticals. I never heard of a rov that took a sabbatical that it had a happy ending. They go away for a year, and then they got this uh, young upstart you know, assistant rabbi filling his shoes. Oh, this rabbi is amazing. Don't bother coming back, rabbi. We're good. It's a hard thing. It's a big sign to have a real sabbatical every seven years. Imagine what that means. That means I have to stop working my field an entire year, and I have to have people coming into my crops heating whatever I do have on the fields. And it's tremendous workout for Bitochen. I mean, you can't get a much better workout than that in terms of proving that you really trust Hashem. So the Chinuch says that's one side of Shemitah, and that we all know. But he also adds like two other toyolias, two as he puts it, two other advantages that we get from the midst of Shemitah if you're a farmer, it teaches you vatronus. It teaches you how to share with others, how to give in, because you're watching out of your kitchen window aniyim and people just going all, all through your, your, your beautiful fields and taking whatever they want, which must be really difficult. And it also teaches you shaloya kili. Kili means don't be a cheapskate. Don't be stingy. Work on that midah. You have to work, learn how to share. You have to learn how to not be cheap, how to be able to be generous. And, and open with your wallet and open with your, open with your heart and give because that's what Shemitah is all about. Shemitah is not only about working on your bitachin muscles, but it's also working on your generosity muscles and giving things away and being able to understand that people are, people are coming on my field and let them have it. Don't, don't be tight-fisted. Allow them in and allow them to have it and don't shepherd with them. So I understand how it teaches you bitachin. But how is it teaching me how to be generous? Is it teaching me generosity, really? The Torah is saying, I don't have a choice. I have to let everybody in my field. So they come into my field. Does that mean that I, I learn generosity from that? 
How do I learn how to be generous? Like the Matzai Shemitah, does that mean that I'm automatically going to be a more generous person because during the Shemitah year I allowed people on my property? That's like saying because the Torah says fast on Yom Kippur, that means I'm going to probably do great on my diet the rest of the year because uh, you know I learned the art of dieting on Yom Kippur. No, on Yom Kippur I, I, I was not allowed to eat. Today I am allowed to eat. I'm going to go back to being myself. I'm going to eat whatever I want. How is it going to teach me generosity? The fact that I allowed people to come onto my field during Shemitah, how does that teach me generosity? That's my question. And I want to answer both of my questions with a story. In the city of Lodz, Lodz was a major city in Europe, major Jewish city before the war, and there was a very, very great rub. In fact, Reb Chaim Kanievsky, Reb Chaim Salvechik, rather, called him the last ideal, prototypical rub. He was like, if you want to know what a rabbi's rabbi looked like, he was it. This is the, the rabbi of Lodz. His name was Rabbi Elio Chaim Meisel. And he was a, a very, very... He was a, a beautiful man and a, and a, and a perfect rav. What made him a perfect rub? Besides being a tremendous Talmud Chacham and a very, you know, good orator and, uh, you know, did all the things that normal Rabbanim do, he had a tremendous heart and a concern for his, his people, his, the, the, the people in his tzibur, in his kehillah. He lived in times that were very difficult because um, it was, industry was getting, uh, like, like, for example, like today you have like a lot of people are losing their job because industries are becoming like there's no assembly lines anymore that have people turning screwdrivers in, in, in car companies. Everything is done by machines. There's no human being anymore that's turning a screw in a, to make a Honda. It's all done by robots. It's all, if you ever see a ro- uh, plant, it's all robotics. It's all robotics. And obviously many people lost their jobs. So this really what was happening, what, what was what happened in Lodge at that time where he, when he was the Rav, there was big textile mills and they started using robotics, whatever the robot me- mechanics, machinery, to uh, start doing the tech. And all the people that were employed in these textile mills making textiles lost their jobs. It was a big problem. And a lot of those people lived in Lodz. So what the Rub did was, first of all, he bought himself, with the help of a lot of Gevirim and Lodz, a, a textile plant. And instead of using machines, he had, he had the people, all of the poor people in Lodz, employed in that plant. And so that was one thing that he did that was great. But he also took care of the Anim in town to a tremendous proportion and he he went constantly and knocked on the doors of the Gevirim in town the wealthy people in the city of Lodz and there were there were many there was one great Gevir he was like a super super wealthy man his name was Israel Poznansky Israel Poznansky and the reason why he happens to be famous is because if you go to the cemetery in the city of Lodz, where El Yechayim Eisel is buried, there's the largest mausoleum. A mausoleum is like a, a grave, but it's not stama, like a little gravestone. It's like 
the size of uh, you know the Lincoln Memorial. It's huge. It's 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 like literally like a huge thing. If you look in my book, Great Jewish. Uh, um, journeys, which is about Kivrei Tzadikim, and I speak about Rabbi Chaim Eisel's there, I have a big picture of his grave, of this Paznansky's grave, as a graphic, because I say over the story that I'm about to tell you. Just to give you an idea of how wealthy he is, he was, he was, he still, Ad Hayyim has the largest mausoleum in Europe. There's no other person in the whole Europe, including maybe kings and queens and, uh, and, and, uh, and ambassadors and, and Gevirim. He built for himself, or he commanded that should be built for him after he dies, this great mausoleum. And on it, it says Poznansky on the top of it. It's very cool. So, and you go in, and that's where he, you know, he's buried underneath, but you could sit in there and so this Israel Poznansky was one of the, the wealthiest men in Europe at the time. And he was a balabas of Rabbi Meisel in the city of Lodz. He owned huge textile manufacturing plants. And, and Rabbi Yechayim, it was in the middle of the winter, and there were many poor people in Lodz also. It was a very big town, as I said. And, and the poor people needed firewood to heat their ovens, to heat their furnaces, to heat their homes. And they didn't have. There was, there was poverty and uh, they weren't able to... It was freezing in their homes. It was freezing outside, but it was even freezing in their homes because there, no, there was no source of heat. So the Rav, being the great Rav that he was, went around collecting money to all uh, door-to-door to the Gevirim in town, to the wealthy people in town. So he knocked on the door of Mr. Poznansky. And again, it was freezing, a freezing cold night. And the butler opens the door, and you know you see in the background the beautiful home with uh, couches and Persian rugs and a crackling fireplace, and it was nice and warm in there. And the rub says, "I would like to speak to Mr. Poznansky." So the, the butler, of course, knew this was the Mordasra. He says, "Rabbi, please come on in. It's so cold out there. Come in, make yourself at home, take off your coat, make you a nice cup of tea." He says, "No, no, maybe soon." I'd like to speak to Mr. Poznansky. He says, again, Rabbi, you could speak to him, but he's in the living room enjoying his, his, his brandy with his cigar sitting by his, by his fireplace. Come and join him there. He says, no, please ask him to come out. And the, the butler quickly like, runs into the living room and tells him that the rub doesn't want to come out. So he, uh, again, the butler comes, please, Mr. Poznansky, Mr. Uh, Rabbi, come in. It's very cold out there. There's no need to have Mr. Poznansky come out. Please come in. It's not a... So he says, no, 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 please ask Mr. Poznansky. Tell him the rub is here and he wants to speak to Mr. Poznansky on the front porch. So he comes out, Poznansky, and he says, Rabbi, Shalom Aleichem, how are you? Nice to see you. What can I do for you? Come on in. What are you, what are you standing outside in the cold? It's freezing. He says, I know, but I'll come in in a few minutes. I just want to talk to you about something out here. He says, you know, he wasn't wearing a coat. He was wearing like a, just his like uh, smoking jacket. And uh, he says, it, it's very cold. Please, he says, let me just tell you. He says, okay, what, what is it, Rabbi? He says, you know, there are so many Aniyim in the city of Lodge. He says, I know there are Aniyim in Lodge. We, we speak about this all the time. He says, yeah. He says, but tonight there are Aniyim that have no heat in their house. And the same way that you're freezing and I'm freezing right now, 
they're freezing in their bedrooms and their children are freezing in their, in their bedrooms and in their living rooms and the wives in the kitchen. Everybody is freezing in the house. Whatever we're feeling now, they're feeling every minute. This is how they feel every night going to sleep. And we have to provide them with firewoods so that they don't have to feel this way. And only once he agreed to give very generously to this fund of the Rav, did they come in and they, and, they, and they sat together in the living room. And Mr. Poznansky asked the Rav when they were sitting together, why would you do that? Why did you have to schlep me out? I would have given. He says, I know that you would have given. But you can't compare actually feeling somebody else's pain than just being described somebody else's pain. If I would have told you by the crackling fireplace how bad it is, how the situation is so dire for the Aniyah, you would say, I understand that I'm going to give you a check. But you wouldn't really understand. You would have sympathy for them, but you wouldn't have empathy for them. The difference between sympathy and empathy is that sympathy means that I feel bad for you. Empathy means that I share your pain. I don't just feel bad for you superficially. I actually go into your shoes and I feel what you're feeling. And there's no comparison between sympathy and empathy. I feel bad for the world. I feel bad, you know, there are a lot of homeless people. And I understand that. But I can't understand what it's like to be homeless unless I'm sleeping in a, in a box on, on Fifth Avenue and, uh, and, and 57th Street. I can't understand it. I could pass by in my warm car and look at them and say, Ay vey nebuch. Or I could, you know, scream at the mayor what a terrible job he's doing. But I can never really feel somebody else's pain unless I'm out there with that person. And Rebellion Chaim Meisel teaches us that you can sympathize with people inside your home. But unless you're standing outside your home, feeling the cold and understanding that this is what people are living with every single day and every single night, you're not going to fully understand their plight. You're just not. And I think that story really illustrates what the parasha of Shemitah is trying to accomplish. I'm a wealthy landowner, or I'm a middle-class landowner. If I, have, if I have land, that means that I'm at least probably middle-class means I have property, I have real estate, I have a business, and I'm doing well. Six years, six years straight, I have a good parnasa coming in, like clockwork. Everything is good, everything is fine. I have workers working for me, and, I, and, I, and I'm generous, I'm good, I'm fine. But I don't really understand what poor people are going through. Because I'm comfortable I have a nice house. I have a nice bed. I have a nice, uh, a, a nice couch in the living room. And I have a, I have a refrigerator and it's stocked with food. So I, I, on, a, on an intellectual level, on a theoretical level, I could sort of understand what poor people are going through. But I don't really, I don't really stop and think about it. Because Baruch Hashem, I, you know, it's like a different class of people. I don't, I don't have to think about them. I don't feel comfortable thinking about them. I can't identify with them. Hashem will take care of them and, 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 and he's taking care of me, Baruch Hashem. 
Shemitah makes this landowner not just understand the poor person theoretically, but really understand the poor person up close and personal. Because what happens suddenly to every landowner in Eretz Yisrael is that they're all mamish feeling the thoughts and the feelings and the emotions that an ani goes through every single day. When they're not allowed to work their field, when their hands are tied and they're not able to, to have that parnasa, to have that steady income, and they're now wondering, wait a minute, it just hit me. What am I going to eat? What am I going to eat? Who's asking this question? The Poznanskis of the world are asking, what am I going to eat? They themselves suddenly feel the pinch and the pain and the nightmare of an ani. An ani doesn't just feel this during a Shemitah year. An ani feels this every single year. The first year to the sixth year to the seventh year, every morning and every night, an ani feels manoichal. What in the world am I going to eat? I have no. I, I look. I open my fridge. Nothing there. My cupboards are bare. I have no money in the bank. I don't even have a bank account. I have no savings. I have no earnings. I'm living from hand to mouth. I'm relying on the largesse, on the generosity of you, and you're shutting the door on me. So what am I supposed to do? Where do I turn? How do I provide for my family? Suddenly, these are the thoughts that the wealthy landowner feels. What am I going to eat? It's not which golf, course, which golf resort am I going to go to this winter. It's not, uh, you know, what should be my second car. It's not uh, which fancy yeshiva should I send my kids to. It's what am I going to eat? It's the most existential question that man could ask. What am I going to eat? And Shemitah teaches you that man is very frail and man is very fragile. And as much as we think that we're in control of our lives and that we're fine and we're good and poor people are like people that were born that way and they're a different class and they're a different category and we look at them as like, like subhumans sometimes because can't relate to them. They're the beggars on the street and we're regular people. Suddenly we find ourselves on Shemitah in a situation that we could very easily identify with every single Ani in the world who has this constant gnawing pain of Manoichal. And the Pasuk says that when you feel that pain, when you're able to say yourself, Manoichal, what am I going to eat? Now you're starting the process of empathizing with an Ani. Because like Rav Chaim Meisel teaches us, we can't understand it unless we, unless we live it. Once we live the life of an Ani for even a second, we will never hopefully go back to our old ways. We'll understand that the Ani is a human being. I was in your shoes. I get it. And I'm going to learn the Midah of Atranas, the Midah of Generosity. You know why? 
because when I asked HaKadosh Baruch Hu, when I knocked on Hashem's door during Shemitah, and I said to him, Manoicha, what am I going to eat? You know what Hashem did? He didn't slam the door on me. I'm going to command my generosity on you. I'm going to write the biggest check in the world for you. Sixth year, seventh year, eighth year, bumper crops, because you asked me. I'm giving you generously. And you have to remember, says HaKadosh Baruch Hu to us, remember what the Ani goes through every day by your experience during Shemitah. And after Shemitah is over, when an Ani comes and knocks on your door and says, Man you also have to be You have to command your blessing on them. You have to not just sympathize and say, you know what, here's $5 and go get yourself a coffee. You're supposed to think about, wait a minute, what's he saying to me, this person at my door? What's he saying? He has an authorized letter that he is approved by the vat of this community or that community. So he's legit. What's he saying? He's saying that he's being evicted from his apartment. Would I want to be evicted from my apartment? He has a child that has Yenemachla, Rahman Litzan. His wife has had a nervous breakdown. And his and his his parents are if you sympathize, you say, that's too bad. All right, here's uh, here's twenty bucks. And that's very generous. It's very generous. But Shemitah teaches us not just to sympathize with people, but to empathize with people, to say, wait a minute, let me stand outside my door a second. Let me stop, let me come out of my house and think about what you're saying. You're telling me that you have a child that has this and this condition, that they're in the hospital right now and you can't be with them because you're busy in New York trying to raise money to pay the medical bills? Is that what you're telling me? You're telling me that you have a wife that had a nervous breakdown that she can't cook and clean and take care of the kids because she's not well? Would I want that for myself? What would I do if I were you? How, how could I understand this? And when you start getting into other people's lives, you start acting very differently. Your checks become bigger, again, assuming that you could afford it. But not just that, like, come into my house, like, tell me about your story. Tell me, you know, did you eat anything today? Did you have supper? Like, what can I do for you? Can I take you around to my neighbors, to my friends, to my parents? What, 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 what can I do? Now, obviously, we can't do this with every person that comes to the door. And especially, you know, when you're Bachram, you're, you're limited in your resources, in your time, and in your, in your exposure to certain people. But, but I'm, I'm trying to share with you the, the ultimate Yid, what an ultimate Yid would do. I know there are stories that are told about a certain person by the name of Joseph Dweck, who was Nifter. Um, I, I'm not sure, but I think he's Rabbi Eli Mansour's father-in-law. I'm not positive about that, but I think that I think so. There's a beautiful biography written about him. Uh, it's called Joseph. I spoke to the author a, a couple of months ago. Um, he wrote it many years ago, but it's one of my favorite books. And it's a Svardi Gvir. He was a wealthy Syrian Jew who lived in Flappish, a beautiful home. And he was just like an amazing person. He just he like all the Muslims in that we speak about. He did, and he didn't have a major, you know, terror background. He was a regular balabas, like a regular balabas, regular friends, regular community guy, regular, 
but he had such a heart of gold that he was so generous with people. And like uh, there was somebody like I think the story goes if I, it's a little bit off the cup, but I I think the story goes that there was somebody that came to him at a chasna and said that um, he needs surgery um, because he uh, if he doesn't get a certain very expensive surgery, he doesn't have insurance, he's going to lose his arm. He's going to he has a tumor in his arm and he needs a certain surgery, otherwise he's going to lose an arm. He says so. Joseph says how much is how much how much is a surgery? So the guy says it's $100,000 for the surgery. It's a very unique surgeon that could do it. He doesn't take insurance. And it's, if, without this, I'm going to lose my arm. He says, so if it was me, I'd say, listen, here's $10. I'm going to go around to you know, 10,000 other people and good luck. You know, like, what, what am I supposed to do? Joseph Dweck said $100,000 for an arm? It's cheap. It's a mitzia. For an arm, $100,000 is a joke. And he went around at the chasna to all of his wealthy friends. And within like a 10 minutes, 15, 20 minutes, he had $100,000 together and he gave it to the guy. The guy saved his arm. That is what we're talking about. That means, obviously, I don't think he could do that every day and he probably didn't. He did other things. He's a tremendous uh, organization in, 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 in Brooklyn that millions of dollars you know, to help people and tremendous, but, but that means that you're empathizing with somebody. Sympathy means, hey, I feel so bad, good luck, I'm sorry, I, I didn't bring my wallet, I'm sorry. That's sort of quasi-sympathy. Empathy means that I'm you now. You come to me, I'm you. I feel your pain. Like Meshur Abeno, when he went out, he was sitting in an air-conditioned palace in Mitzrayim, he didn't have to do anything. He was set. He was Parah's adopted son. But one day, he leaves the palace. He sees his, he sees his brothers working in the field. Rashi says, He gave his eyes and his heart to be mater, to feel their pain. And Chazal say that he actually started helping them build. He took like brick and mortar in hand and he and he started actually building the pyramids with them. That's what it means to be a Yid. That's godless. That means that I'm identifying with you. I can only really identify with you if I've tasted what you're going through. Shemitah says to the wealthy person or to the middle class landowner, only when you are able to actually cry uncle, when you're able to say, I give up, I don't, know, I don't know how I'm going to eat. When you're at that point, now you get Shemitah. At that point, you chop the whole mitzvah of Shemitah. Like the Chinuch says, it's not just to learn bitachen, it's to learn how to be a generous person, how to not be cheap with other people, not to be sympathetic, but to be empathetic. Once you say manoichal, you're now, you're now standing on the porch with Rabbi Elichai Meisel in the freezing cold weather, and I say, okay, now I think I finally understand what an ani is going through. And you're going to follow my ways. When you get your field back, when you're able to be... To be the regular gevir that Baruch Hashem you were blessed with, you're going to answer the door and you're going to be b'tzivis yasper also. That's Shemitah. Shemitah is learning bitachen, but more than that, it's learning bitachen 
plus experiencing the bitachin that other people have to experience every day. Bitachin is very nice, you know, theoretically. Very nice theoretical bitachin. You know, I could learn shar bitachin day and night. If I'm a wealthy guy and I have a house and my mortgage is paid and I, and I have a car and I am gainfully employed and my kids are healthy and my kids are happy and my wife is doing well, if everything is good by me, shalom alay nafshi, bitachin is, is, is so easy. Okay, what is my bitachin? You, what you say, baruch Hashem, mirza Hashem, that's your, that's your, that's your ishtadlis of bitachin, basically. But you don't really become a Baal Bitachin. We should never be tested by this. But you don't really understand Bitachin unless, Rahman al-Islam, you're struggling to make a payment. You're struggling with your kids' schar limud. You're struggling with some major illness in your family and you need to come on to the Rabbi Shalom because you have no other choice. HaKadosh Baruch Hu is not your plan Z, He's your plan A and your plan B, and your he's the first resort. He's not your last resort. He's your first resort. He's your doctor. He's your financial advisor. He's your friend. He's your uncle. He's your father. He's everything. All, that's bitachin. Shemitah teaches you to be a bal bitachin, not just during the shnasa shemitah, but to appreciate bitachin beyond shemitah and understand what bitachin really is. And when people come to your door, you're acting as their god when they are needing bitachin in him, your Hashem shliach, to give money so that their bitachin is justified. This empathy is not just in financial matters, but it's in all matters. When the Meron tragedy hit, and it was a week ago, last night, um, when I first got, like, uh, people were sending me, like, random texts, and at first it didn't sound from the, from the articles that it was so bad. It's, I mean, it sounded like, a, like, a, like something collapsed, a bridge collapsed, or some bleachers collapsed based on the stories that were circulating immediately, and there were some injuries, so it didn't really stir me. Because, you know, okay, it's, I, I figured, okay, it's, you know, somebody probably got a little hurt, I feel bad, I think I said a capital tillum for them, but that was it, I didn't really understand it. And then as the reports were coming in and there were deaths, deaths, people died, and then you see body bags, and like many dozens of them, it started getting closer to home. But it was really only once I watched some of the Levias or one Levi in particular and I saw the father and the way he was talking about his son, his beloved son who, who died then like all of the floodgates inside of me just broke and I, I just I think I finally, I obviously I can never be in that person's but I, I finally understood a little bit about what they were going through When a yid's in pain, the easy thing to do is just go, Ay, Nabuch, you know, what's his name for Tillim? That's the easy thing to do. And even that's a madriga, at least he said that. Most people are just callous, they couldn't care less. As long as, you know, as long as I'm good, I'm fine, then whatever, let everybody worry about themselves. But if I'm a little bit of a, of a feeling person, I'll, I'll ask to, to daven for them, that's very important. But if I'm really a good person 
I'm not just going to sympathize, I'm going to empathize, I'm going to think to myself, Laman Hashem, if, if that was my son, Rahman Litzlan, what would I do? How would I be able to cope? How would I get up in the morning? How would I, how, how, do you, how does life go on? If that's your husband, if that's your father, if that's your friend, if that's your chavrusa, if that's your, your, your fiancé, if that's your chasen, like, what do you do? Now, unless you feel that, unless you make that extra leap into that other person's world, then you're missing so much of a dimension of life. Because that's life. Life is not just thinking about yourself and, like, and, and relating to others as, like, as if you're in your own little glass uh, you know, booth and everybody the world around you is really much different and separate than you. What a yid is supposed to do is to worry about other people, to think about other things, other people, to cry for other people. Even if your tears are not going to help them at all, but it will, it helps. There was a great Hasidic Rebbe, I think it was Rebitzlok Mivorka, one of the great Hasidic masters, and he, he once uh, accepted a couple into his, into his study and they were crying to him because they didn't have children for 10 years, 15 years, and they didn't know what to do, and they were going crazy. And, uh, you know, he said to them, he said, I'm sorry, you know, he saw in Shemayim that it was, the gates were sealed and he wasn't able to do anything. And he said, I- I'm sorry, I-, I can't help you. I see that there's nothing for me to do. And they said, please, Rebbe, like, you got to help me. You're, you know, we don't have anything. We, this is it. Says, I'm sorry, I, I don't see any Yeshua, I can't help you. I wish I could, I can't. Anyway, they got up and they walk out, and they're like walking back to the, you know, to the, to the horse and buggy or wherever they came, and all of a sudden they see the Rebbe running towards them. And he says, come back. So they come back into his office, and they, he said, you know, I was wrong. He says, I don't see any way in a normal way to open the doors of Shamayim. It seems sealed. And I don't think I can help you. He says, but there is one thing that I could do and that I didn't do. And that's, I could feel your pain and I could cry with you. And the three of them sat and cried and cried and cried. And Shari Shamayim opened. And that year they had a child. Feeling somebody else's pain isn't just altruistic. Feeling somebody's pain opens locked doors. Whether the person knows that you're feeling their pain, whether they don't know you're feeling their pain, if you can somehow say, what's that person going through? It changes your life, but it changes their life. Sometimes people come to my door and, you know, it depends on, on what's going on in my house and how busy things are and how crazy things are. Sometimes, you know, a lot of times I just have the kids give them money, you know, because if they see me, then they want checks and they get angry at me if I don't give them what they thought I could give them. And so I just basically give my kids $10, $20. And I, and, 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 but sometimes, like, when things are, when I'm not eating supper, I'm not on the phone, I'm not, and I open the door and I try to understand what they're going through a little bit. And I speak to them nicely, and I, I just listen to them. 
they're human beings. These are these are not people. Like as soon as we say, oh, it's a tzedakah guy. All right, you know, like automatically, it's like you know, as if like they're human. They're yidden. They're 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 human. They're they're alive. They have hearts. They have families. They have children. They're not people that are just like you know, like they're not golems that just like come to your door. These are real people in their communities. They're chashuv. They come to America or to New York, wherever they're, you know, wherever they're from, and they they need us. And if you can't help them financially, at least cry with them, hear what they're saying. Don't right away dismiss them. A lot of times you go into a shul or yeshiva and you have like, you know, people start screaming at the, at the mishulachim there, get out, don't you see the sign outside, no collecting, no... All right, maybe you're right, maybe it's shter is davening. And, you know, there's, there, that's an open uh, debate whether or not, you know, it's, you should let people come in and to collect, you shouldn't, it's not appropriate, it is appropriate. That's for the rabbis to, to debate. But lemaisi, you have a human being in your shul and he has tsaris. If he didn't have tsaris, I doubt he'd be coming into your shul asking for money. I somehow don't believe that that could actually happen. That I'm just like, I happen to have a Tesla in my garage at home and I go to shul to get dollar bills from random individuals. I don't think that's what happens. So these are people, and all of a sudden, like, they're so um, vulnerable as it is with their situations. And here people feel that they have the right to start screaming at them. Get out of here! Who are you? Schnarr! Go get a job! Like, what? This is not Sadaim. We're supposed to help and care about people. And if you're a Ben Taira and if you're, you have a heart, then not just this parsha, but for the rest of your life, anyone that's hearing this shmooz, including myself, especially myself, we have to get a brand new attitude towards the unfortunate amongst us. The people that are poor, the people that are broken, the people that are downhearted, the people that are suffering, the people that are almanus, the asimim, the agunas. You have to relate to them in a certain way. You can't just look at them as, as, like, as cartoon characters, as two-dimensional that have no depth to them. These are human beings, and you don't want to be in their shoes, trust me. And it's a galgal achazer, if we're not sensitive to them, it could come back to us. The stipler, once somebody I think came to complain to me, I have all these anim coming to my door, what should I do? I can't live, I can't learn, I can't eat. He says, I'll give you a bracha. He says, you should always be on the inside of the door and never on the outside of the door. Rav Hutner once had a Talmud and it was on Rosh Hashanah. And it was like davening was over and uh, Rav Hutner heard that there was a Talmud in the dormitory. He was like very depressed. He was broken. He was upset about something. So he asked the Talmud if he would mind going up to uh, visit this Talmud in the dorm and take care of him, just shmooze him, it's Rosh Hashanah, try to be misameach him a little bit. So, so the Talmud said that since it was Rosh Hashanah, he really wanted to learn. He didn't really want to spend that precious time on his Rosh Hashanah, you know, taking care, sympathizing, being holding hands with a holding the hand of a of a fellow Talmud. He wanted to just. So Rav Hunder looks at him and said, a satiated man 
cannot understand the hunger of a starving man. When you're satiated, you're Baruch Hashem, you're Yeshiva Baruch you're strong, healthy, everything is good, your family is good, your friends are good, everyone is good by you, you can never understand the hunger that a starving man has. Because you're, you're different. He's different, you're different. And that's unfortunate. That's how most of us are. We're, we have a full stomach. I can't relate to people. I don't want to relate to anybody else. But the Torah is saying that everybody has to ask themselves, Man Neichal. And by asking yourself, Man Neichal, that is opening up the door of your life. That's being able to appreciate the plight of every Ani and every unfortunate person, an Ani Bedas. Let's say an Ani that doesn't, that, that's not smart. That's also an Ani. A guy in your class is not doing well. A guy in your shear is not hopping shear. He doesn't have the basic skills that you have to learn, to understand. And you could say, oh, he's an Ani, and, you know, keep him at hand's distance, at arm's distance. I don't, you know, I'm good. Baruch Hashem, I'm doing well. I write my chidushim, and I, my Rebbe loves me, and everything is good, and I, I, I have a good seder ayayim. He's an Ani. Identify. Would you want to be the? Would you want to be in that person's shoes and be floundering in sheer, not being able to understand and not have a chavrusla, not be able to think about that for two seconds? Would you want to be him? How do you think he feels? Those are questions that should plague us, and it should open up our hearts. Manaychal becomes an understanding of human condition. People are actually hungry for money, for food, for knowledge, for friends, for health. People need things. And Baruch Hashem, if we're in a good position, then you should thank Hashem. You should get down on, the, on your hands and knees and thank Hashem for everything that we have. But that doesn't patter us from identifying closely with what other people are living with every single day. And until you even stop and think about that, then you haven't begun life. You haven't understood the... The, the first step of bitachon and amunan, being a yid, being a yid is what Reb Chaim Malajner used to say, ha'adam nivra. we were not created for ourselves just to be myself and take care of myself and myself and myself. I was put here to help you in any way that I can. And it's a different perspective on life, and we learn that from this parsha. The, uh, the not the ani, the balabayis saying manoichal. That's a light bulb moment in the balabayis's world that I can actually feel what an ani is going through manoichal. And then I look around my kitchen window and I see the aniim in my field, and I say, wait a minute, that's probably what they're going through every single day. How could I change that going forward? After Shemitah is over, I'm going to also be mitzvah my bracha to them in such a generous way because I finally could say that I get your pain. I lived it. Manoichal was something that I lived with every single day of Shemitah and I get what you're going through and I appreciate it and I love you and I'm going to take care of you because HaKadosh Baruch Hu takes care of us all.